when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We've got the history of gaming on the show. Gaming's a thing. Gaming's a thing now. For those of you who are here for Henry VIII and the defeat of the Roman legions in the Teutoburg Forest, gaming's got as much of an illustrious history as anything else on this podcast. Gaming is a global phenomenon. Gaming is what we're all going to be doing in the future. It's what all our kids and grandkids are going to be doing, probably more than any other form of entertainment that we know of today. And Tristan Donovan is the man to guide us through this. We need to understand what gaming is, where it came from. He is an author and journalist. He's written a couple of books on the history of video games. It was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a nostalgic trip for me, this, because I remember... I'm not a gamer anymore, but I kind of realised that I was. I was an early adopter. I was a, a five, six, seven-year-old playing the earliest video games. And I should have kept going. I could have made something in my life. Um, I had a head start. And so I kind of dropped out around the year 2000 when I became addicted to civilization and almost died of starvation and dehydration, surrounded by my own uneaten food, waste, and unanswered letters. Uh, so that was a wake-up call, and I stopped gaming. But I'm regretting it now because this is a fascinating conversation. If you want some digital entertainment that's going to blow your mind, head over to historyhit.tv. It's a digital history channel. It's like Netflix, but for history. Available in all territories in the world. I just received a tweet from someone in an island in the Indian Ocean. They're watching History Hit TV. No problem at all. Smooth as anything. No buffering. So there you go. What a wonder the modern world is. If you head over to historyhit.tv, if you use the code January, you get our extraordinary January sale. Uh, and you get uh, a month for free and then your next three months for 80% off. Frankly, it's crazy this offer and I look forward to being over. But take advantage while you can. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy Tristan Donovan. Tristan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. How old is gaming? Dates all the way back to the 40s. The very earliest things you could call video games start in the late 40s when people were first inventing computers and people like Alan Turing are inventing chess games to play on them for artificial intelligence research. Wow, so before the personal computer there were games? Yeah, yeah, games existed long before personal computers. So the first one that you could really call a video game in the sense we know it now came in 1962 on MIT. They built this game called Space War, a little kind of shoot them up kind of game. And that was built on a huge kind of one of these giant computers that filled up an entire room at a university. Really? And so the first game was a shoot Space War. I mean, that had does that tells you a lot about where the direction the industry would go in, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, it had everything you could think of that would find sort of 
games in the early 80s when they came along. It was like two sort of rocket ships flying around the galaxy shooting each other. And it's a template that's lasted. Exactly. Uh, Okay, so you've got kind of artificial intelligence demonstrations, Turing playing, all that kind of stuff. But And you got space war in the early 60s. What about an industry? When when is it a consumer-led marketable proposition, would you say? Right. So this starts with two people, Ralph Bayer and Nolan Bushnell. So we'll start with Nolan Bushnell. So he was into starting a business around arcade machines and he played Space War at Stanford University. And he thought, if I could get that in an arcade, that would be fantastic. But of course, computers were enormous and you couldn't really fit them into an arcade and they cost a fortune. So he basically worked out how to build a kind of replica of a computer game out of just old circuits. So it was like resistors and transistors and basic electronics that you could buy in those days at somewhere like Tandy or Maplins and basically built a machine that made a game a little bit like Space War and put it in an arcade. He was the sort of first person to bring video games to the wider world. Then at the same time, a guy called Ralph Bayer was working for a a military research company in New England, and he came up with the idea of we should make um, a game machine so people can do something with their TVs other than watch TV. So he, he built this little kind of machine that you plug into your TV set, and it played a little kind of bat and ball game where you kind of knocked it the ball from one end of the screen to the other. So it took years for him to get someone to make this game, a TV set manufacturer called Magnavox, released it but it it wasn't very popular but then and neither was Nolan Bushnell's game computer space but then Nolan Bushnell noticed Ralph Bayer's console and thought that kind of basic bat and ball game would make kind of an okay arcade game let's give that a try and that became Pong and that's when video games suddenly went massive suddenly spread all across the world everyone wanted to play Pong so these that little game of kind of two bats at either end of the screen, bouncing things back and forth. But Pong was made by Atari, right? Yeah, so Nolan had founded Atari at that point. Okay, because Atari, and so Atari becomes the what I always thought was the first name in gaming. Yeah, no, it was um, the second, well, third, really. So you had Nutting Associates, which published Nolan Bushnell's first game, Computer Space. Um, brought that into the arcades. And then Magnavox, which was an American TV manufacturer, brought out the first game console, the Magnavox Odyssey. And then Nolan left to found Atari and pretty much started the industry. And Atari did cr- pretty much define the industry from that point on for a good 10 years. Wow. And so the dream of gaming was established at that point. Pong, everyone in the world was playing Pong. Yeah, and now it seems ridiculous because... It was literally like six years of people played Pong or things that were variations of Pong for a good six years. That's all there was, you know. It's like more arcade machines. Maybe it's a four-player game of Pong. Maybe it's Pong, but it's vertical. Oh, it's Pong for your home. Um, It's Pong for your home in colour. I mean, this went on for years and there wasn't really that much else happening in games. People love Pong. This was 1972, Pong came out in the arcades, and you were still getting Pong machines by 1980, so they were still a viable business then. So, I mean, this was going on for pretty much the whole 70s. When do we see the next generation after Pong? Well, that really 
begins when people start getting microprocessors. So before then, games are made just out of basic hardware. Suddenly you get cheap microprocessors and games become like computers. So is it fair to say Pong is in some ways not a computer game? Pong is not a computer game at all. There's no computer in it. So it's one, one of those weird things that kind of computer games didn't really exist until the late 70s when the first home computers came along. The tech is key here. The microprocessor uh, comes in in the late, in late 70s. Yeah. So what that change meant is in the Pong era, you had to basically solder and wire together a game. That's how you made a game. You made it out of electronic circuits and you had to build that. Microprocessors meant you didn't have to do that. You wrote it in computer code. And that suddenly sort of opened up the opportunity to do all kinds of things. These circuits were getting really complicated. You know, it's really hard to get do much beyond Pong. So you get microprocessors and then you start getting things like Space Invaders and Pac-Man and all those kind of early 80s games that really kind of take games from being the simple Pong kind of pastime thing to something much more exciting. So, you know, Space Invaders, it's like suddenly they're kind of armies of aliens coming down the screen shooting at you and it's pac-man you've got these kind of cute characters for the first time and it's really kind of explodes off the back of that i remember both of those so well and just it, the space invaders as as he, as he went on they just got more scary and sort of bigger and had more jagged shapes it was so exciting yeah and sound i mean there wasn't much sound in the early pong days i mean it was just one tone but Space Invaders, it had that kind of death march of doom, 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 doom. And it would speed up as the game carried on. It was almost like Jaws. And am I right in thinking that I had a tape? And now young listeners might add an audio tape with a ribbon on it. Younger listeners will have to go and watch an 80s film to understand what that is. But is that how I loaded up my games? Yeah, that was how it was. So in late 70s, early 80s, and, and for Europe, most of the 80s, Games came on cassette tapes and you would load in the cassette and it would spend five minutes kind of transferring what is now just the same amount of memory as an email. And sometimes it would just crash at the end. I mean, it was pretty wonky, the technology then. Oh, yeah, I remember the I remember that getting caught up shouting for my mum and dad from the attic and they'd have to come up and kind of... They were presented with this tape that all the ribbon had just got absolutely deeply entrenched into the little turner bits and they'd have to sort of tear the whole thing out with me complaining all the time. Oh, Gaming in the 80s, kids. It was wild. It was wild. In fact, it was so wild it kind of put me off weirdly because I was quite a gamer when I was a kid and I'm not a gamer now. I think I've, I think I've my career is the wrong way around. But then everything changes, right? Because I remember that from that year on, there was a different kind of home computer, like the the, the kind of... The hockey stick phase had begun at that point, right? Yeah, so essentially it came established and you had consoles on one hand which were kind of easy plug-and-play, you know, pure entertainment, get a cartridge, put it in and you get Pac-Man at home or whatever. But then you had computers at the other side and essentially both of these became fixtures of people's homes. So, you know, there was a kind of market that just kept on growing and the thing about computers was anyone could program on them you know a games console you can't make a game for unless you're a professional but home computers anyone could so this is where you get things like in in britain and france you just had these kind of amateur programmers often teenagers just going oh well i've got a computer i'm going to write a game and 
um, I'm going to sell it mail order or I'm going to phone this game publisher and they're going to sell it. And that's where the industry really sort of starts to come through and kind of grow into what it is today. What are the big moments then on, on this march from the from the 80s to the present? The first big thing is 1983, Atari pretty much goes bust. So the early 80s had this huge boom, particularly in North America, of video game sales. And at the time, it was treated like the toy industry. And basically, everyone just flooded into the market. Too many games, most of them fairly rubbish. And suddenly, the sales all stopped and everyone went bust. So it seemed like consoles were dead. But then Nintendo um, in Japan decides, well, kids still like games, we're going to bring out a games console. Everyone thought they were completely insane. But what Nintendo did that was different is they had this iron grip of control over what games would be published on their system, the NES. And that redefined kind of what console gaming was. It kind of meant they could control the quality. So you didn't have kind of everyone just turning up going, oh, well, I've kind of worked out how to do it. I'll make this awful kind of game and shove it out there and I'll make a quick buck. So Nintendo came along with that and Super Mario Bros and basically revived the entire game industry off the back of that. So this kind of transfers everything towards everyone's looking at Japan as the leader of the industry and also consoles are kind of where the big stuff happens. You're listening to the History Hit Podcast. We're talking the history of gaming with Tristan Donovan. More coming up after this. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome 
when did people take gaming seriously as a kind of cultural phenomenon? At that time, it was definitely still kind of boys' toys kind of thing. And I think that really changes when Sony come into the market with the PlayStation and games go to 3D. So what Sony did is we're going to market this not as a kid's toy, but as a consumer product, a bit like a hi-fi or a video player. Um, We're going to market it young adults. We're going to except there being more mature themes. So you get games like Grand Theft Auto, which would have been unthinkable in the heyday of Nintendo in the 80s, where it was like, this is for kids. You wouldn't put out a game like Grand Theft Auto where people are going around robbing each other. You also start getting things like Tomb Raider, which, you know, 25 years later doesn't look as revolutionary and kind of looks a bit sexist. But at the time, just having a female lead character was a bold move for a game. And so games sort of finally went out of this kind of darkened kids' bedroom kind of culture into the mainstream of society with things like FIFA and Grand Theft Auto and Tomb Raider. It became cool almost to play video games. When do we see Hollywood waking up to the idea there might be there might be money in, in games? I'm trying to think, what was the first big sort of tie-in? Would it be Sonic or something or, or Tomb Raider? What, what, do you, what was it? Hollywood had always been paying attention, but the games industry had this kind of little brother kind of syndrome so from the 90s till pretty much the end of the 2000s it it was always looking at hollywood it's like oh we're, one day we're gonna make games as big as what hollywood makes and oh we like our games to be cinematic and we'll have these great stories and we'll show hollywood how it's done and kind of hollywood was just like well you, you know you're, you're kind of geeks programming games you know what do you know? Um, so there was always this kind of weird tension of kind of Hollywood's the kind of destination that games were trying to get to for a good 20 years. And I think that's changed now. I think the games industry kind of got over its inferiority complex and decided, actually, we're making more money than film. Why, why are we trying to be like Hollywood? We're bigger than Hollywood. We don't need to do that. We don't need to try and make games that are movies. We can just make games because they're doing well enough that anyway as a brit we've raced past the story of sinclair which i feel the re- i feel the rest of the world needs to know about early 80s there's no pcs every computer format is different and pretty much every country was getting their own kind of version of a pc and in the uk we had clive sinclair kind of inventor of you know kind of cutting edge kind of wonky technology but also very cheap technology so he came out with zx81 and the zx spectrum computers and these were the cheapest computers in in the world for anyone to buy i mean at time computers were kind of several hundred pounds this was kind of a 99 pound computer so obviously it sold really really well and that kind of created a world where the British game industry could grow up in and start making games like Jet Set Willy and Night Law and things like that, which were really big in the 80s. And part of the reason that worked is because not many other countries were playing the ZX Spectrum. It, it was big in Spain and some other parts of Europe, but largely it was a British thing. And so, you know, American companies weren't making games for it. Um, you won't have to worry about competition from Japan. So the British industry kind of had a bit of protection by being part of this kind of, hey, we're the people using ZX Spectrums and no one else is. I remember the ZX Spectrum and, yeah, I, I'm not. did the Brits have much to be proud of there? 
Yeah, I, I think in terms of the cost, you know, it it was a radical breakthrough. It's the keyboard was awful. Um, if you had two the same colors together, I mean, it it looked terrible. But you know, the programmers squeezed some great games out of it, and you know, it fostered an entire British game industry. And British game industry is a major player worldwide even today. And it wouldn't have happened without ZX Spectrum. What happened to our mighty, the mighty Spectrum and the Sinclair Empire? Yes, well, uh, Clive Sinclair wanted, he he was never very into games and he wanted to go on and build um, a new kind of transport vehicle, um, the Sinclair C5, which is kind of like a go-kart for driving on motorways, um, was kind of the vision of it. And he also wanted to make flat screen TVs and Basically, he did these things and they were expensive and they failed. I mean, he became a laughing stock with the Sinclair C5. And Sinclair really kind of just ran out of money. The computer wasn't making that much money to save it. So um, Alan Sugar's Amstrad came in and bought Sinclair and basically continued it for a few years. But then Amstrad decided it was going to make PCs and abandoned the computer market so that it was kind of a sad end to the Clive Sinclair story. Who starts making the waves in in that decade uh you know 20 years ago? Okay it's South Korea is the country I'd point to so South Korea is an interesting one it kind of late 90s it's got no history in video games whatsoever it's barely got a game industry no one really pays any attention to South Korea but South Korea is kind of slightly unique because it's got a very bitter history with Japan. It's been invaded by Japan. The Japanese Imperial Empire were awful when they ran it. And so after the Second World War, South Korea bans Japanese cultural imports. And that means no Japanese games consoles are going into Korea. So Korea becomes a nation of PC gamers. Then after the East Asia kind of financial crisis of the late 90s, um, the Korean government goes, we've got to find a way to kind of kickstart the economy. We're going to put in the world's fastest broadband connections. So it starts this massive program of super fast broadband, the fastest broadband in the world. And this kind of creates this culture of we're going to play online video games, multiplayer sort of World of Warcraft type games. But these games require subscriptions. And subscriptions online require credit cards. No one in South Korea has got credit cards. So they come up with this idea that they sell little items in games. So it might be a hat for your character and you'll pay a small amount of money on your phone for it. And so this creates a kind of new way of doing the games business. The games are free to play. You don't have to spend anything to play them. But you can buy little extras, whether it's a sword that makes you more powerful or kind of a faster go-kart or whatever it is. And that's where the game maker will make money. So this kind of new way of doing games kind of turns up in South Korea. And since then, it's spread worldwide. It's spread first to China and now it's spread pretty much all over the world. You know, a lot of games now, they're free to play and you just play for little you pay money for little extras. We mentioned Hollywood. Now, now it seems that the games, gaming is almost the big brother to Hollywood. Is it? I mean, in terms of, in terms of what people spend their time doing and money. Yeah. So, if I'm 
can remember the figures right. I think the film industry is worth about 100 billion. The game industry is about 160 billion. So at this point, kind of video games are noticeably bigger than film. And I think it was always an odd sort of bedfellows, you know, sort of. The the interesting thing about video games is that they're sort of left and right brain together. You know, they're partly the kind of tech world of Silicon Valley. They're also kind of the entertainment world of Los Angeles. So they, they've always been in that kind of strange middle place. But essentially, I, I don't think the video game industry looks to Hollywood anymore. I think it's more now Hollywood might be looking to video games for um, games it could turn into films. I think the kind of balance of power has shifted. I have a feeling VR may be having a false dawn again. It's, really? Yeah, so I think it's here to stay, but it, it's kind of slightly trapped. It's yet to really break through into the mainstream. So if you think of the PlayStation 4 that had something like 110 million consoles were sold, and it's got a VR headset, which is the best-selling VR headset, and that's only sold 5 million. 5 million out of 110 million isn't that great a performance so there's not a huge incentive to make many games just for vr and so and there's there's also problems with people feeling nauseous when using vr that you know they're starting to overcome but it remains a problem that for many people their first taste of vr was like i played this for five minutes and then i felt ill so it vr hasn't quite got its legs yet i don't think it's going to disappear like it did at the end of the 90s but I don't think it's going to take over as it might have seemed it would four years ago. What is it about in the character of modern gaming that shows it's the, the unique journey that it's been on? I think it's in the way that it's brought people together and changed their relationship with media. So you have to think before video games, the experience of media was very passive. You would be the consumer. You were never kind of a participant in what you consumed you could watch tv you could watch a movie you could go watch a play you could listen to the radio but you can't control that it's kind of beamed at you video games kind of changed that relationship now it's a case of well actually this game doesn't do anything unless i'm playing it Um, and it's changed how we think about media we expect more control over it so i think you can see that a little bit in how say something like netflix works Certainly how kind of social media works, you know, there are ideas from games that have kind of seeped into that and kind of how how we interact with things because we expect to do something and get that feedback. And the video game industry really kind of pioneered that. They were the first ones to go, you've got a TV, but actually we're going to give you proper control over what's happening on the screen. And that didn't exist before games. So I think that's kind of the role they've played in sort of changing society and it and how it's sort of wrapped up in it. Is the golden era still to come in, in gaming, do you think? I always kind of get worried about golden eras. You know, everyone's got a golden era. It's usually kind of their childhood. So, you know, there are people who talk about the golden era of the early 80s games. Um, there was a golden era around 2010 when digital distribution of games began and it suddenly made it cheaper for sort of three or four person studios start putting out games without needing a big publisher and a million dollars. I think there will be many golden ages to come. I think kind of golden age is kind of always very subjective and and games are endlessly inventive. There are so many different experiences that they offer. I mean, this is a kind of world that has everything from Grand Theft Auto to farming 
simulator in it and you know they're couldn't be two more different games but you know that they're, they're still under the same hat thank you so much for coming on this podcast you've written you're the you're the like historian of the gaming world so tell me what what's uh, what's your latest book latest book is um it's all a game a short history of board games but obviously i've also written about video games with replay the history of video games which first came out in 2010 very cool thank you very much indeed tristan for coming on the podcast thank you hope you enjoyed the podcast just before you go bit of a favor to ask i totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough world out there law of the jungle out there and i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.